Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We thought we could get started with the equity markets. We're going to again have an eclectic show uh, this morning. Douglas Cass joins us, who's always inter- in- interesting uh, because uh, Mr. Cass uh, follows the markets looking long term, but also more of a short term perspective. And there he has been uh, very, uh, uh, very uh, uh, cautious, is I guess how I would put it. Doug, good morning. We'll say the Yankees for the next block because I don't want you to hang up the phone. <laughs> Uh, on me. If I look at the markets, have you covered your shorts? Have you reaffirmed your shorts? Well, I essentially uh, trade around my core short positions almost on a weekly basis. Um, that said, I'm probably at my, well, probably at my highest net short exposure that Why I've is that? In, in two or three years. Why is that? Dramatic. It's dramatic. Why is it? Well, I think everything in the market gets overdone um, uh, with the S&P and even the FANGs. And the S&P price rise over the last couple of years has outpaced the prosperity on Main Street. It's time for the markets to fall back in line with what is actually happening in the domestic economy. And how severe the decline will be can be debated, but many like myself look at most valuation metrics that lie in the 95% decile. We look at the historically wide difference between GAAP and non-GAAP earnings, with GAAP at 18 or 19 times, yeah. and non-GAAP, uh, non-GAAP in excess of 25 <clears throat> times. Mm-hmm. We look at the dangerously high equity cap to GDP ratio, which is Warren Buffett's favorite valuation, and we say the market is overvalued. Within that has been a leadership and that we've had a number of stocks out front and the bulls would say that, frankly, there's been a real lack of leadership. How do you cut that? Do you want to acquire shares in the laggards or are they a signal of the angst to come? I tend to look at the, my um, both my longs and my shorts on a bottoms-up basis. Um, um, you know, I'm sure a number of popular stocks like Amazon and Disney, the latter, whose growth rate is probably, whose secular growth rate is uh, probably under 10% compared to 18% historically, compared to 13 to 14% in consensus on the sell side in Wall Street. And that's how I do my business. I don't look at, you know, I look at, I don't look at price targets. I look at probabilities. And I look at the, um, just generally speaking, I look at the dysfunction and the disorganization in the White House and the animus not only between the Dems and the Republicans, but within the GOP itself. And I recognize, as a guest, uh, I think a professor at Columbia in an early segment of yours said, it's highly unlikely that we're going to see the implementation of uh, the administration's tax reform of infrastructure uh, plans, so that we're, we're probably stuck in barely a 2% real GDP growth uh, rate for the U.S. as far as the eyes can see. How do you respond to the bulls that say we need a recession to really slip into a Doug Cass kind of market? I don't think that's true empirically. Um, I, you know, I think that uh, the market is more governed by uncertainty. And I'll say what I said before on Bloomberg surveillance. I'll say it again. Uh, Donald Trump is going to make market volatility 
and economic uncertainty of outcomes great again. So I think that the incremental 8 or $10 of S&P earnings from the administration's initiatives um, is likely, uh, in, in, in let's say, in S&P earnings terms for next year is likely a pipe dream. I, I mean, within this, Doug, is the idea of being completely short, being not hedged, but saying you can have some enthusiasm. Now, I'll get to Twitter in our next section, but is there any part of a broader large cap market where you can hide, or, or, or is it so grim that you can't own utilities, you can't own this? You well, I, as I said, I do a, a, a bottom-up kind of analysis, and I have actually uh, a number of long positions, but on a net basis, I am net short. But these are um, specific ideas that meet my uh, criteria for investment, and very few stocks meet my criteria investment. But there are some companies like Hartford Financial up in Connecticut, um, Campbell Soup, Twitter, et cetera. I'm even long a couple of retail stocks now. Now, what would they be? I mean, we we covered J.C. Penney on Friday. I mean, that was remarkable. Sure. I listened to your. I listened to. The you segment. listened to us. Of course, I always do. My word, um, Colin, we're up to fourteen listeners. That's just unbelievable. <laughs> That's unreal. Fifteen. I didn't okay. listen. To, I didn't listen to the game. I didn't listen to the game last. Now we'll do that in the next section. Or you um, won't come back. I'm going to beat you to death. But uh, you know, Doug, I, I I look at Amazon as a short. I mean, how do you short Jeff Bezos? That's like mom, dad, apple pie, and the rest of it. Well, I'm short Amazon base, and this is uh, clearly a contrarian view, which is typical of many of my popular shorts like Starbucks and Disney, and in this case, Amazon. And I'm short at Tom base principally on the existential threat that antitrust issues and political viewpoints and initiatives may hold over the company. The company is, is finally attracting some media and political attention for its business practice, it's uh, disrupting order parts, appliances, and its plans for food retailing through Whole Foods acquisition. It may uh, very well have too many opportunities. Perhaps it's creating a massive smokescreen to mask uh, business problems with profit generation. Mm -hmm. But at the core of my concern is whether Amazon is growing too big and that the disruptive impact of Amazon's growth and plans could lead to government restrictions affecting that growth. Let's do Twitter right here. We've got a couple of minutes uh, left here. And am I right in that you are long, long, long on Twitter? Is that just a takeout idea? I'm really long Twitter. Yeah, I think that the market is paying uh, nothing for um, takeover optionality or merger optionality. I think um, Twitter, by this time next year, will be part of a much larger company. And its basic core business is, is fine, despite you know the recent drop in the stock price. Well, but you need a lower stock price, uh, stock price to affect a transaction. I think that um, the stock will probably be taken out in the neighborhood of twenty twenty two dollars. Okay, so it's currently trading around sixteen Let, bucks. Let's come back with Doug Hess. We've got lots to talk about, including a pitcher and his family from the Los Angeles Dodgers of a few years ago. Mr. Cass is with Seabreeze Partners. Doug Cass of Seabreeze Partners will weigh in on the Fed. Now he's going to weigh in on the Browns, the Lichtensteins, and the Kofaxes. Sanford Brown, who is 81 years old. Uh, uh, Doug, I refuse to believe that Sandy Kofax is 81 uh, years old. Uh, we have had a hellacious weekend, including images from Charlottesville that were just extraordinary about Jews and about a lot of other elements of hatred in right. this country. 
Take us back to 1965. I remember the firestorm of debate when Mr. Koufax said, no, I will not pitch. Um, It was actually 1966. Excuse me. (laughs) Well, Sandy, um, you know, it's, I would say that, Tom, baseball is a lot like investing. You know, as the dude said in the Big Lebowski, strikes and gutters, ups and downs. And Sandy in the mid-60s developed that arthritic shoulder. And I remember sitting with him and my grandmother, uh, Jean Koufax, in which he said to my grandfather, Harry Koufax, if he continued, and this was actually in late 65, if he continued baseball, he might lose his arm. Yeah. Um, you know, and I don't know if it was a function of medicine, the absence of medical advances at that time. I suspect he would have had surgery. Yeah, Tommy John. In 2017. Yeah, yeah. But um, it was it was kind of catastrophic as a Dodger fan and as his cousin. I mean, within it is growing up in Bensonhurst and, you know, on Long Island in that time. It's remarkable. Yeah, we moved to my hometown, Rockville Center, Long yeah. Island, on the South Shore briefly. Yeah, they were, you know, in Rockville Center. And uh, he, he was essentially, folks, a walk-on at Cincinnati in basketball. And uh, uh, I guess he was a walk-on. He had like three tryouts in the majors before Branch Rickey decided he could bring the, the ball well, in. Well, he was a basketball player at Lafayette yeah. High School. And his yeah. best friend was Wilpon, who owned <clears throat> the New York Mets. Yeah. And Wilpon was a pitcher. And he wanted to hang out with Fred Wilpon. So he decided to try out for the baseball team and play you, first base at Lafayette High School. Doug, within you're being part of this family, the greater Koufax family. Do you te- detect a difference in Charlottesville this weekend versus the debates of 1965-66 over religion and the importance of Yom Kippur? Is it, is it a, a different discussion now than it was back then? I think that the... The same prejudices, unfortunately, existed then um, as they do now, and I hate to say that. Um, As uh, Mayor Bloomberg once said, I'm a New Yorker, and I know a con when I see it. And unfortunately, the president disavowed the action on Friday, but didn't disavow the actors. And I think that's extremely disappointing, and that was expressed by many of his uh, Republican peers. I should mention that uh, Mr. Bloomberg, the former mayor, is a principal owner of Bloomberg LP on this station. Doug, we've just got a minute left, which is all you need to describe uh, not the collapse, but the desire, I think, of everyone for the Yankees to make go of it. Um, For our global audience, their relief pitching failed in two of three games. What's to do, Mr. Cass? Mr. Koufax can't do it right now. I'll tell you who are doing it. The Los Angeles Dodgers, they haven't lost a series since early June. The winning percentage, I think, is over 700. Yeah. Is it just about money? I mean, come on. They bought the team. It's more money. Is more money than God what matters in baseball? sound like a typical Red Sox fan. Thank you. They need, you know what they need? They need Sandy on the mound, and they need this 13-year-old Little League World Series kid, um, Jace Blaylock, who plays for Georgia, who hit a 375-foot home run. He's 13 years old. Remember he hit it in the trees last year? Yeah, yeah. 
I would suggest. I would suggest. That's my suggestion, Doug. I would suggest they need Mr. Drysdale to put it under somebody's chin. Uh, Doug Cast, thank you so much uh, this morning on the equity markets. Mr. Cast's caution on the markets, and also, of course, a, a snapshot there of uh, Bensonhurst and Rockville Center from another time uh, and place. Uh, what they did in Washington a number of years ago, uh, a great uh, uh, financial supporter and fundraiser for President Obama was uh, Fred Hochberg. And, and he got his job because he gets up early in the morning, which is what you do with the Small Business in, uh, Administration and the Export-Import Bank as well. And joining us in our studios and uh, well-timed, I mean, we could talk, for, I think, for at least two hours here about your family's heritage and, and you know, one of your uncles, I believe, was killed at Normandy and, you know, all the emotion uh, of the weekend that we saw. But let me start with business. Is it, is it re- you're retired as the head of the Export-Import Bank. Oh, is that, that right? Hurt. Retired. I, Are you retired? I wrapped up my time there. I don't consider You wrapped up your time. <laughs> Here's the door. What's your hurry? What's the state of the Export-Import Bank under President Trump? Well, uh, it's a little vague, to be honest with you. He has indicated more of late that he's supportive. Uh, He has indicated his nominee for the chairman is someone who's been inalterably opposed to the bank, uh, part of the leadership against the bank. So it's hard to read those tea leaves. But he still has an empty board. They're just two acting Mm -hmm. members. You need three for a quorum, but there's no quorum. Banks been essentially lapsed for two over two years for any major transactions. And it hurts our competitiveness and hurts job creation. You uh, have been more than visible in some of the themes that seem to anger the people that were so angry in Charlottesville uh, this weekend. There's any number of ways to take this, beginning with your support for President Obama, your support for uh, LGBT rights, and, and critically, your support of your family, the Lillian Vernon people, and and uh, the the heritage of your family. What was it like for Fred Hochberg to see the signs I put out on Twitter, direct hatred for Jews? How did you process that, and did you bring it back to the president? Well, what is so shocking, and when we think about terrorism, and many have called this domestic terrorism. Terrorism is about fear. It's about creating a sense of anxiety in people, not just for the people in Charlottesville, but for people throughout the United States. It says, be careful, be watchful, you're not safe, you're not in a secure place. And so what's frightening, I think, about the weekend is this is about striking fear and 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 putting a damper on people's sense of being an American, being grateful to be here, and ask, and saying you should really be very careful and not sure of yourself. And so uh, that was what so was frightening, I thought, about uh, this weekend. Hi, I just want to jump in here and ask a, a question sort of back to, you know, Charlottesville and the issue of um, the export import bank. But can you make the best argument to, let's call them the global skeptics, that um, – I think, you know, we're behind the Trump movement for why we need the Export-Import Bank now. I mean, the argument is that it's kind of a crony capitalism 
and uh, it doesn't really benefit most Americans and so forth. What is the counterpoint to that when you're trying to sort of address those concerns? Well, first of all, if you're a global skeptic and you believe in sort of uh, America first, America manufacturing, and America pr economic prowess, then you need to believe in the Exim Bank. We're not going to be able to sell overseas, and we're not going to be able to compete and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Chinese, the Koreans, the Germans if we don't have a financing institution just like they do. There are 96 export credit agencies around the world, each one slugging it out to create jobs in their country. So for us to try and go into go to that fight with one hand tied behind our back is simply crazy. I look I look at this, Fred, and just in the brief time that we we have for you, and as Eli mentions, globalists. How did we become a nation of globalists? What is what does globalists mean? That's a great question. First of all, I think we became a nation because we're a nation of immigrants. Uh, as you mentioned, my family came here uh, in the lead up to World War II. Uh, we're a nation, we're the most diverse nation in the world. So people in our country have connections to every country around the world. Not so if you're, in, if you're German or French or British in the same way. So I think there's a realization that we are 5% of the world's population. Yeah. Uh, 95% is out there. So we want to have a, a strong economy, creating a lot of jobs, uh, having a great standard. Right. We need to sell to them. Okay, you raise money. You raise big money for the president. Uh, Greg Vallier mentioned in his morning note the disarray of the Democratic Party. Do the Democrats have to migrate away from a coastal progressive tone and refine scoop and refined scoop jackson's democrats are they out there or is that a wasted task i think the future of the democratic party is going to be with young people with uh, millennials with urban people um we don't want to write anybody off but clearly we have to understand who our appeal is and i think one of the appeals we have to do is for people who don't get a fair shake in this society and that has to do with workers minorities uh, women uh immigrants and so we can't forget that and that has to be front and center as we pursue a policy in Washington and now, pursue elected office. First time I've ever asked this question on air, I'm, gonna, I'm honored to ask it with you. When does President Obama decide to run again? <laughs> well, the, the Constitution will prohibit that, so he can't do that. He can't do that again? He can't do that. Can't, it's yeah, it's, it's sure, two terms what total. I know. Fred Hocker, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Former head of the Export-Import Bank as well. Eli, you got to write a column on that. President Obama, even if he waits out a Grover Cleveland term, can't run again. <laughs> I mean, that's the law, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know that there are a lot of people. I mean, I think I feel like he's one of those figures right now who's left that can unify us. And it would be nice if the if President Trump would, would sort of recognize that this is one of those moments of crisis where he needs mm -hmm. to sort of be bigger than his base. Uh, even though I I, yeah. I I maintain that this is not these 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 Klansmen are not his base. I mean, these are fringe haters. He is the go-to guy for so many about perspective of our Navy and where it fits in. He grew up a most interesting life in uh, Los Angeles, uh, to, to say the least, and then on to uh, uh, a service for the nation in the United States uh, Navy. Admiral Mullen uh, this morning. Admiral, what is your update on the state of our Navy off the shores of Korea? Well, I, I know it's going to be uh, one of uh, high level of readiness. Um, we have for years 
put our uh, most technically advanced ships uh, and uh, air wing, if you will. We have a, an air wing of plus about 75 airplanes there, plus a, a nuclear aircraft carrier, which is home ported in Japan. Uh, so they'll be not just technically advanced, but uh, their readiness level uh, will be uh, exceptionally high. I mean, it is normally, and then it will be that much more so just because of the recent yeah. uh, tensions. I know Eli's got a lot of questions. Let me ask one question. And this is a question I got at least three times this weekend, including from one child as well. Can we shoot Korean missiles out of the air? How do we do that? Is that a secret? Or do people actually know how we do that if they were ever to fire uh, a missile with a dangerous vector? Well, you've seen, uh, actually in, in recent weeks, these missile tests, which have gotten uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, publicity. And uh, so the short answer to the question is yes, we can. It is uh, the way uh, I've described it and others as well. It's uh, hitting a bullet with a bullet. The speeds are uh, several mock, if you will, coming at each other. Um, but uh, we've developed that technology uh, over many, many years, actually decades, so that we have that capability as we speak. Admiral Mullen, thanks so much for, uh, for doing this. I, let me ask you this. Um, we, we learned last week um, that there is a defense intelligence agency estimate that North Korea has the technology or capability to miniaturize a nuclear device for a warhead. But, um, you know, as I reported in 2013 and others had reported, this had been kind of floating around, you know, in, in the intelligence community for a while. How much of a shock is that really to the U.S., uh, you know, military at this point? Um, and when do you think we really learned that? Is that recent or is that is or, or have we known it for a while? I think I think the shock uh, the shock is not that uh, uh, he's either developed it or he's very close. I think. The shock is that he's done it as quickly as he can. While we've talked about it for years, there's one thing, at least to me, very clear uh, watching Kim Jong-un, is he is on a very rapid pace to develop this system. The missiles, the, the nuclear technology, and to mate them and have that capability, much more so than his father was uh, in, in many ways. The number of tests that he has conducted, um, and this, to me, this is his number one goal, uh, and he is, he is uh, significantly outpacing anything that's happened there in the past. So I think if there is a shock is that, that he's there if he is so quickly. Let me, let me follow up on something in that, you know, for those of us who've watched the North Korea crisis uh, unfold over the years, one thing that we've noticed is the North Koreans really do not negotiate in good faith I think the best example of that is during the George W. Bush administration when we began administration uh, negotiations by lifting sanctions and taking them off the state sponsor list. You know, they were secretly working with the Syrians to develop a nuclear site, um, sending their technicians and so forth over there. What is the formula and the argument for how we could negotiate them down uh, in terms of the nuclear program this time when it hasn't worked for nearly 25 years? Well, I think, and I think you make a good point, Eli, and, and I think the likelihood, uh, should we get into direct negotiations with the North, that the behavior in that regard would change uh, is, is uh, pretty small. So we, would ex we should expect more of the same. That said, what, 
What hasn't happened in the past and what I believe is the only path now is through Beijing. We've always said that. Beijing has always been very reluctant to take the lead. Um, and yet I just don't see a peaceful resolution of this crisis without Beijing really stepping up. And that doesn't mean alone because we should, we should support them. Uh, we should do everything we can to allay China's concerns uh, about what would happen with uh, the United States being very active there to include the instability in the North, uh, the, uh, the, the worry that uh, there would be a regime change uh, and that we'd have unification, uh, the financial impact of that uh, to certainly the region and China. So I think we can go a long way to allaying and guaranteeing China that their interests uh, are best served by doing this as well without undermining other things that they worry about, including us back up at the Yalu. So that's the path, I think, that has, to, that has to be taken. Now, in light of that, and I, and I think most people I mean, agree with you, I think that was a strong argument. I mean, is there, an, is there a case to be made that Trump's uh, kind of somewhat reckless rhetoric uh, in the last week on North Korea could potentially change the calculation for China to make them realize that they need to do this or they, they need, they may, they may, they, we may be getting a war from the U.S. side and that this is another calculation? Well, I just think it's a very high-risk path right now. Uh, this is a very, very tough, complex situation. And uh, clearly the president has, has made it very uh, clear to China that, that he has expectations along these lines. The, the problem is the rhetoric has been so hot that I don't think he's left himself, that's, that, I mean the president, much maneuver room if China doesn't choose to do this. So it really is high stakes poker right now. And the outcomes are, uh, you know, are a possible solution, which would be terrific. Uh, and then the, the other side of that, uh, which is exceptionally high risk, is that there would be some kind of mm. combat or conflict breakout. Um, Admiral, uh, I, I want to speak of your wife, Deborah, who's in charge of uh, cultural uh, military policy for the Mullen household. Yes. In James Trevitas's fabulous The Leader's Bookshelf, which is my book of the summer, folks, I can't say enough about it. Admiral Mullen turned to Deborah Mullen and said, I think we need to read Tom Friedman's From Beirut to Jerusalem. And so much of that is about a culture that we miss yeah. in America. How does the president bone up on the intricacies of Northern Asia? What, what is the Mullen path for anyone, and particularly the president, to become smarter about, uh, smarter about the cultural delicacies here? Well, I think the assumption um, that all of us uh, should focus on is that we are not very good in cultures other other cultures around the world, and that we don't understand them. And I have always tried, uh, particularly um, in the senior jobs that I had, to I've tried to see <clears throat> the view from the others, the other individuals' eyes, or the other individuals' country, how they see the world, how they they see the issue, and and you really have to work hard at that. So. There are experts that you can consult with. There certainly are 
are uh, there's a rich l- literature on the culture of that region in the world, as there is actually in most regions of the world. And I just couldn't emphasize enough the need to focus on that uh, in terms of uh, understanding how the yeah. Chinese will react or the South <clears throat> Koreans will react or the Japanese and the North mm-hmm. Koreans specifically. Let's come back. Admiral Mullen with us, of course, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He is with Eli Lake in our 99.1 Washington studios. We say good morning to all of you in Washington. In our studios, Eli Lake in Washington, 99.1 FM studios in Washington. Of course, Mr. Lake writing for Bloomberg View, uh, often on national security in our most interesting and fractured American politics. And he is joined by uh, Mike Mullen. He's the former admiral of and uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Admiral Mullen, there was a boat. I'm speaking as an amateur, not a ship, a boat. In 1945, that wandered through the 1950s, saw significant action in the Western Pacific, and then it was refitted or something. And in 1973, a lieutenant, climbed on board the Naksubi, and I guess it was your first command. What was it like the first day when you took over the Naksubi? It was, it was awesome. Um, uh, one of the reasons that I really loved the Navy and wanted uh, to stay in was to command ships, and that was my first one. And I was all of 26 years old, my own, uh, my own crew, <laughs> yeah. uh, deployed <clears throat> twice to the Mediterranean, uh, in the early 70s, uh, it was an extraordinary yeah. experience. And the reason I bring it up is, is, as if we've talked to James Stravitas, the idea here that on a ship, things get clarified. Did you ever, when you were in command of ships, have to deal with sailors or, for that matter, officers who had the hatreds that we witnessed in Charlottesville? What do you do when a white nationalist or a white supremacist shows up in uniform? How did Admiral Mullen handle that? Well, I can honestly say, really, two thoughts. One is uh, a brief answer to your question is no, not uh, not that I can ever recall. That said, we in the Navy in the 60s and 70s, we went through some pretty tough times uh, we had riots on sh- race riots on ships uh, in in ways just a reflection of what was going on in the in the country at the time. And when people ask me about what's going on now, and there are a lot of people who are very very nervous and 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 anxious, you know, I, one of my responses is we went through some pretty tough times in the '60s and '70s, and we got through them. They were. They were difficult. I think we're going to get through this. That said, there's absolutely no place for the neo-Nazi, Ku Klux Klan, you know, white supremacists in this country, quite frankly. And what happened there uh, in the last couple of days is, is, is just tragic. It also represents a, a very visible aspect of the divide in this country, and I think leaders across the country, at every level, local to national, have to figure out a way to start to unify the country and not let this divide continue. Thank you so much. I want to sort of, along those lines, I want to ask you about something. Um, I think, uh, you know, when historians write about you uh, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, one thing that I think you will really be uh, remembered well for is your role as a leader in breaking the taboo on gays in the military. And I don't think President Obama would be able to um, repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell if it wasn't for you. 
I say that as someone who covered it at the time. And that brings us to the current moment with the issue of transgenders, uh, transgender people in the military. Um, do you feel that this is a similar kind of point as gays in the military and it's a question of basic equality? Or are there sort of special considerations in the military that you have to consider, you know, given questions about whether there should be, you know, subsidized transitioning surgery and things like that? This this should be, uh, this is an issue of equality. And okay. it is, uh, as it was for gays in the military, uh, it is those young men and women who raise their right hand and want to serve our country or are serving our country uh, who, um, who are transgenders um, and uh, that we should certainly uh, support them. It's very, very similar to the gays in the military issue. That doesn't mean that, they're, that we shouldn't figure out a way to to uh, support them medically. I think it's been widely reported that it's really not very much money to do that. The other thing that about the transgender issue uh, is the lack of knowledge uh, about what that's really all about. And I think that lack of knowledge oftentimes scares people off. Um, I've actually talked to the current chairman, uh, General Joe Dunford, about this, uh, who, uh, similar to the Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, you know, his position is everybody who uh, is able ought to be able to serve, and, and our interest shouldn't focus uh, on that aspect of an individual's life. Well, we have run out of time. Admiral Mullen, thank you so much on this important Monday. Greatly appreciate uh, your attendance. He is the former chairman of our Joint Chiefs of Staff. This is going to be a great conversation, made greater, because I'm going to really try to get out of the way and let Eli Lake on national security talk to one of our great pros. I'll bring him in, ask one question, and Eli, Tom Ricks is all yours. Mr. Ricks, uh, you were very visible this weekend as we all tried to digest Charlottesville. And what is so important is it brings us back, as Joshua Rothman of Alabama said, to the 1930s. You've just written on Churchill and Orwell in the 1930s. Do you see similarities between Charlottesville and the 1930s? I do, and it worries me. I think Saturday was a very bad day for this country. Somebody said it was the worst day of the Trump presidency, and I agree. I think we're seeing increasing political violence in the streets and increasing acceptance of political violence. And both those things worry me. I think that political violence has no place in America, that it's illegitimate. And it worries me when I see both the right and the left kind of applauding these attacks. Well, that's a very good point. But let me push back a little bit because I think I disagree with you on the question of whether this is similar to Europe in the 1930s. Can you talk about, I mean, do you, don't you think that one major difference at this point is that in the 1920s and the 1930s, fascism as an idea was accepted among many political, economic, and cultural elites as a totally legitimate way to organize societies. That is not necessarily the case today. Do you think that we really are in danger of a Republican Party or an element of American politics to bring back these odious and hateful ideas of white supremacy and so forth and so on? I think that we're seeing white supremacy granted a place 
at the American political table that I had been assumed, as I think many of us did, would no longer be there. Uh, I'm not saying that fascism is necessarily the answer. I do think that reactionary politics uh, are uh, in the middle of the American political mainstream right now. We have perhaps the most reactionary president in American history, someone who does not explicitly reject the support of fascist white supremacists and other right-wingers. I don't know where this is all going to go, obviously. What I'm saying, though, is the uncertainty, the political turmoil, remind me of the 1930s, especially when we see opinion given privilege over fact, uh, where people say, I don't care what the facts are, I have my opinions. That reminds me of in the 1930s when people said, well, communism is good, so anything that helps communism is good, so lying is right. good if it helps communism. And this is what George Orwell so vigorously opposed. When he got up and said, look, I'm a leftist, I'm a dedicated socialist, but I will not lie to help my cause. And for this, he was roundly denounced, as was Winston Churchill on the right when he got up and said, Nazism is wrong, you cannot compromise with it, and all you were doing with the policy of appeasement, was the, which was the official British policy in the 1930s, all, right. all you do with appeasement <clears throat> oh. is, is make it more likely that we're going to have a big, violent war. Tom Ricks, what does a president do? What does general this, general that, the other eight generals in the administration, what do they do with the so-called nationalists in the White House? Do they just fester? Is that the prescription we all look forward to? Um, I actually have changed my mind about this. Initially, um, I was a supporter of the idea that it was good to have adults in the room. And so when friends of mine uh, said to me, hey, Tom, um, you know, I think I might go into the administration. I know you're anti-Trump. What do you think? My response was, look, it's good to have good people in the U.S. government. I've changed that to the extent that I think it's bad to have competent people right around Trump. All they do is make him more effective. Uh, I want good people in the rest of the government, Defense Department, State Department, but I think Trump is so incompetent that we should let that be our uh, his saving grace. Just let the White House be a sinkhole of incompetence. Oh. And so I think McMaster is a competent guy. It'd be better for him to leave and just have one of Trump's um, no, nothing. No. Allies be the national security advisor. Thank you so much. On short notice today, uh, the author Thomas Ricks, of course, he's taken home a few prizes, starting with P, along the way. Churchill and Orwell: The Fight for Freedom. A great book. Is a wonderful. Yes, Eli. I read it. It's one of my favorite books of the year. I should say. Just a just a wonderful window into the '30s. It takes away the World War II romance, if you will, of Churchill and talks about the realities of where Churchill was and then. Orwell following uh, on. Eli, it's amazing the different emotions here. What do you think we will hear quickly, Eli Lake? What will we hear from the president at 3 p.m.? Well, I can tell you what I hope to hear, which is a robust and full-throated denunciation of these white supremacists. Um, I realize I'm in the minority, I guess, among the guests who've who've been uh, on the show today, but I I think there's a difference between people who have um, a view that I should say I don't agree with on immigration or uh, Mm -hmm. free trade, which I also don't agree with, and then people who are truly interested in, I guess, restoring uh, a kind of Jim Crow era America. It's a tension, uh, to say the least. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.